Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown, not the Bible Breakdown as it once was, but we are currently in the Advent Bible Breakdown part of the year. So welcome to our second Advent lesson on the Bible Breakdown. We got one this week, one next week, which will you could maybe just call that Christmas, I guess. Um, and then that will be our last planned one for the year, but glad you're joining us for this one. Uh, last week, we talked about some of the prophecies that concerned Jesus' birth. Uh, we talked about Isaiah 9. Uh, we talked about Isaiah 11. I should have actually reviewed what we talked about before I just started shooting off the cuff, but here we are. And I know we talked about Micah 5. We're going to talk about Isaiah 7, the Emmanuel prophecy, next week. So we're saving that particular prophecy for our Christmas lesson. Um, but this week we are going to talk about another common Christmas theme or rather a common Christmas story. Probably it's less of a theme than it is a story. We're going to talk about the visit of the wise men and all the drama that surrounded it. Now you may be thinking as I did even probably shortly before I started writing this Bible breakdown, this, the wise men coming is kind of boring. It's not really that big a deal. False. It is very, very interesting. There's a lot to it, a lot to unpack. And I've also just tipped you off to something that we are going to do for the very first time on the Bible Breakdown. We are going to play a little Christmas true or false to assert or debunk some common Christmas assumptions surrounding Jesus' birth. A comment by a loyal listener We'll call her Robin because that is her name. She sparked the idea for me. So thank you, Robin, for the inspiration on that one. So the story of the wise men's visit is coming at us from Matthew 2. That is where we'll be today. We'll start with verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, first Christmas, true or false for you? True or false, Jesus was most likely born in the springtime. If you answered true, you are correct. Okay, the fact that um, there, this is from the, the Luke tale of uh, a similar time when the shepherds here are announced uh, the coming of Jesus. The fact that they were out um, watching their flocks at night probably suggests that it was springtime and there was a chance they were going to give birth to new lamby lambs. So um, that is why we think it is probably most likely that Jesus was born in the springtime. Okay, so you may be wondering, as I was, why do we celebrate it then in December? This might rock you a little bit. The celebration in December actually comes from a time previously that there was a Roman pagan celebration. But as Rome became Christianized uh, around 300, uh, you may be familiar with Constantine, eventually Christianity would be made the official religion of the empire. Uh, that time off that they had had for this celebration, which was called Saturnalia, Okay, it transitioned to a time for Christians because the time was off anyways to celebrate the birth of Jesus instead. So the time of the year stuck, even though um, I'm sure there are still some people out there celebrating Saturnalia. I hate to break it to them, but more people are celebrating Christmas and well, they should. Um, so the time of year stuck. 
again, don't don't let this uh, don't let this ruin your Christmas spirit. Uh, it's just a it's just a date to celebrate at the end of the day. Um, and so, but we of course it's natural for celebrating Jesus' birth. We'd say that we'd think he was born around December twenty fifth, but that's most likely. I always say most likely. When we don't know something for certain. It's best just to say most likely, right? Uh, a friend had actually mentioned this the Saturnalia piece to me last year too, and then I also saw a reference to it in uh, the commentary I was using on Matthew by Dr. Craig Blumberg. So thanks to both of them for the for the tip on that. Um, so the first one, Jesus was most likely born in the springtime. That is true, and you're probably wondering why I started talking about that now. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. I guess second, true or false on. The Advent Bible Breakdown number two. The wise men, or magi, as they are sometimes called, were kings from outside of Israel. True or false? This one is false. They were from outside of Israel, but they were not kings. They were probably uh, diviners or priests of a, of a different religion. Um, and they were most likely from like Persia or possibly Babylon. So that's where they were coming from. Um, also, I said I wasn't going to mention this, but I'm going to. You probably are familiar with the version of this that says we saw the star in the east, uh, which does create some geographical um, confusion um, because they are coming uh, from the east. So Jerusalem would have been to the west. So if the star was in the east, they would have been going the wrong way, right? Okay, if I'm in Maryland and I see a star in the east, it's probably out over the ocean, right? Not over Texas. So... But you know what's uh, so I did a little word study <laughs> in the ESV. This is really like this is kind of it's giggle worthy because um, it's really inconvenient. Um, the word that it used for like when it rose is sometimes translated like when it rose, and sometimes is like a directional east, which is really <laughs> really difficult to work through. So either way, you know things happen. But that's why the ESV has decided that it was intended for when it rose. Um, though you probably are more used to traditionally hearing it. Uh, we saw your star in the East. But anyways, I bring that up also because I thought it was kind of interesting. But they were probably, these wise men were probably not just like diviners and priests, but also really into astronomy and astrology, okay, which kind of go hand in hand in some ways. If you're going to be a good astrologist, you should know a little bit of astronomy, though you don't necessarily need to know anything about astrology to be a good astronomer. So they were probably people that looked in the stars for signs from God. So looking at the heavens and the signs that they held. So they had probably some religious and political prominence in their nation. Again, likely Persia, possibly Babylon. Um, and they saw a strange star. So what do you do if that's what you do is look at stars? Uh, you come running. Okay, so they came running to Jerusalem. They saw the star hanging over the nation of Israel. And so they are here to find out what is going on? So they come after seeing the star. They're looking for a child, as they say. And they say, we're looking for the one specifically who's been born king of the Jews. Now, this probably really chaps Herod's khakis because he's king of the Jews, right? That's what it says in verse one. In the days of Herod, the king, right? He was the, and I'm saying king, quotation marks king um, of the Jews. He's under Roman authority. He is effectively a puppet king. Um, and he just has power because it's been given to him. They're like, we don't want to, we don't want to deal with the day-to-day -day operations. But Herod was known, was a fairly prominent as a king, um, even in that, even in that kind of situation he was in. So that's why the wise men have come and they're clearly guided 
in some way by God because they have recognized it's an important sign and they know pretty much before anyone that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Okay, let's not let that get just like assumed that these people from a different country are like, where is he who has been born king of the Jews and we're here to worship him? That is clearly information that uh, was that came from God, right? By what means? Of course, we do not know. But there's nothing about a star in the sky saying that, oh, this means there's a baby that was born that is king of the Jews and we also should worship him, right? That's That requires some revelation from God. And so that's what they say that they are here for. They want to worship him. They know that Jesus is the king. And Herod, uh, after hearing this, he kind of gives them a one sec. Let me go check something real quick. Herod needs some help. So moving into verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Okay, so Herod, he's losing it. He is troubled. He is greatly distressed by this news that someone has been born king of the Jews. And he is correctly drawing the line to, ooh, maybe this is the Messiah. And that's why he asked them, where is the Christ or Messiah to be born? Okay, so he's connected that dot, but... And then he, and it says all Jerusalem. It's not like the whole city was like in an uproar, most likely. I think he's probably talking about the, the Jewish leadership, these chief priests and scribes that he gathers together. These are probably the ones who are all troubled, right? It's not like uh, Joe down the street was also very troubled by this. Um, mostly just like the Jewish leadership, those who kind of knew that these men had come and were looking for a Messiah, right? And so he asks them what scripture talks about the Messiah's birthplace. Which, we talked about that last week. It's pulled from Micah 2 with some... No, we're not... I said I wasn't going to get into it. It's pulled from Micah 2. It's not a direct quotation. uh, But that's where it comes from. We talked about that last week. Um, And so there's a little bit of summary going on in there too. Um, But Herod kind of also shows he's not much of an Old Testament scholar, since he probably should have known this. This was uh, passage was viewed as messianic, even in the time it was written, which would have been like four or 500 years before this. Um, Not all passages that we now see as about Jesus were always recognized as about the Messiah. This is one that actually in some of the the Jewish literature and the intertestamental period um, were led to believe they actually did view this as uh, the Micah 2 prophecy as uh, something that was related to Messiah. So something that Herod probably should have known. He was really only Jewish in uh, name. Like he was a, um, you might, call him a cultural um, follower of Judaism, not really um, somebody who fully ascribed to it. And that is made even more clear by a lot of the evil things that he does. So um, he gets everybody together. After his get together, he goes back to the wise men. Verse seven, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. All right. So Herod does some math, which hopefully is a stronger subject for Herod than his Old Testament study. 
And he tries to figure out when the star had appeared. Okay, so hold on, hold on to that little tidbit that he's trying to figure out when the star appeared. And then he sends the wise men to look in Bethlehem because that's what the prophecy from Micah said. That's what, uh, well, that's what his chief priests and scribes told him. He didn't know that. That's what they told him and they were correct. And so he sends them to find out and he's saying, oh, I, I would also like to worship the king. Of course, Herod's a big old liar. That's not at all what it is. It's a hunk of baloney. It's clear from the narrative. His purposes are far more nefarious than that, which we'll get into. So before we read the next paragraph, or yeah, the next few verses, got a couple of more true or falses for our Bible breakdown, true or false. First one, true or false, the wise men visited Jesus in the manger. Okay, that's one. Second one, true or false, there were three wise men. True or false. Okay, let's read 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, so the answer to both of those previous true or falses, both answers actually false. Okay, we see in verse 11, they actually went into a house in Bethlehem. Uh, you may remember they went there for uh, to so that everybody could be counted, and he was of the... Uh, the lineage of David. So that's where he had to go. Maybe Joseph had family there. It's possible. Again, don't need to, uh, we don't necessarily need to speculate how they ended up in the house, but we do see that they went into a house. And before you think that, Oh, that's probably the same as a stable or cave or wherever they were. Could have been a cave. Actually. That's another, that could have been another true or false, but again, it's hard to prove. So this actually is a time after the time when he's in the manger and everything. Okay. So they went into a house in Bethlehem. So it's been a little bit since Jesus was born. The word for house would not have likely been used to substitute for somewhere where animals would have gathered where there would have been a feeding trough for Jesus to be laid in. So that's, I started on that and then I got lost. So it's not likely that it's just a different word and it's referring to that as their house. This is most likely a, a house in the city rather than where Jesus was first laid to rest. And second, we don't actually get a count on how many wise men there are. It is actually, I say that, that it was false. It's certainly possible there were three, but it isn't stated how many there are. Why do you think the traditional number is three? If you guessed it's because they brought three gifts, I think you're probably right. Okay, but the idea of three wise men chilling with the shepherds at a barn, like most of your nativity scenes will portray probably not actually what happened. Not that, and listen, I'm not here to dog nativity scenes. I love nativity scenes and what they represent. And here's the deal. It's a helpful way to represent both those portions of the story in one scene. So I'm, I'm literally not, not, a, not a tiny bit of shade toward the, toward the nativity scene, more just a I think the lesson we take from this is sometimes we assume things about what the Bible says and it can be much more dangerous than assuming the wise men went to visit him in the manger or that there were three, right? This is a, a very small instance in which a little assumption is not really doing us a lot of theological harm. 
but we do want to be careful when we are talking about this is what the Bible says that we actually are pretty sure what it says, right? So uh, no one no one doing nativity scenes I don't think are being purposefully inaccurate or just ignorant. Um, it's just it's just the way it is, and I do think that it brings together a lot of the elements of the Christmas story in one scene. So again, keep those nativity scenes up. Don't break them. Uh, if you've got three wise men, don't like color on a piece of paper and add a fourth. Um, we don't know if there were four either. So just leave the nativity scene as it is. They're a lot of fun. Regardless of all of these things, the wise men do come to see Jesus. And they apparently see the star move to the place that Jesus is. And as some guys who are really into stars, that makes them super excited, right? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like they rejoiced a great joy, joyfully, and with joy in their hearts, and their names were changed to joy. Like they were just over the moon about it. Okay, so they have come to see Jesus. This star has showed them the place. They go in and they worship Jesus. Remember, these are guys, are priests and diviners of another religion. Again, God is clearly at work in the lives of these people. Okay, he's... what other revelation do they have that the Jewish people don't have? What other reason do they have to go and worship Jesus while Herod's over here plotting against him, right? God's clearly doing a work in these wise men, these magi, right? So they offer him valuable gifts befitting a king, gold naturally, frankincense, which was precious, aromatic. It was used in the Old Testament as part of incense offerings, at least in Judaism. Also, you may have heard, and it is true, it was sometimes used in the process of embalming. Myrrh, very similar, very perfumey, and had embalming purposes. So not only, these would have been fitting gifts for any king, okay, not just for, for Jesus, but we, of course, see the significance of these gifts being fit for a king and fit for a burial, right? So we see in this early moment an unintentional sign given by these wise men that we see they brought these gifts and in a small way. And again, this is one where we, knowing all the facts, we know how this connects rather than like in Micah when they believe the whole time it was something future about the Messiah. We see this because we know the rest of the story, right? That Jesus is going to willingly die on a cross for our sins. We see the significance in an even grander way of these gifts that were given. So that is what the wise men bring. The wise men receive another sign from God, and he tells them to not go back to Herod, but instead to go home by a different route, because unfortunately, Herod is about to start making some even more terrible decisions. Joseph receives another dream from an angel uh, that appears warning him to take Mary and to take Jesus to Egypt because Herod is searching for the Messiah and he unfortunately goes to great lengths to do so. Verse 16 in Matthew 2, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod, in a fit of jealousy, using the information the wise men had given him about when they saw the star. Remember, I told you to hold on to that little piece of information. He decides that the child must be, based on that timeline, two years or younger. 
and he has all the male children that could potentially be this Messiah that he is so fearful will make him small and irrelevant. He has all potential male children killed in that area. An absolutely brutal act born out of insecurity and pride and fear. But Jesus is kept safe and doesn't return from Egypt until Herod's death within a, within about a couple years of this uh, is when Herod dies, but he is in Egypt uh, until that time before they return home to their home in Nazareth and shows here that great evil can come from a desire for power, for prominence, and a desire for influence. And we see that in Herod, that he was so afraid of losing his what he thought was his place, what he deserved, that he thought a better course of action would be to commit this massive infanticide of children two years old or younger in that area. So unfortunately, we end the Bible breakdown, at least the scriptural parts that we're going to be reading on that note. But here's what I want us to think about for our application. There's a few things that I think we see in this passage that are good for us to apply. One is we see another example of God's heart for the nations, okay? It can be very easy for us to think that, oh, you know, God was pretty much just uh, interested in Israel. He only loved Israel for most of the Old Testament and even till now. And then when Jesus died, then he started caring about people who lived in different countries. I think this is a great example of a story of how God's heart has always been for the nations um, because these random guys who followed some other religion, they were the first among the first to come and worship Jesus, to know about Jesus, to know that he was king of the Jews, right? They maybe didn't even fully understand, but they did also, again, they came to worship him. That was part of what they said. They wanted to see this child born king of the Jews and they wanted to worship him. Clearly, God was revealing himself to these wise men, even when they were in a far off land. And remember that these areas had had influence from Israel before, but for them to know such a specific piece of information, for them to see such a specific sign, shows another example of God's heart for the nations. Back in when God calls Abram, First of all, Abram is the nations at that point. There's no Israel. He's going to become the father of Israel, right? But he talks about how his offspring is going to be a blessing to all the nations. And that's God's heart. God's heart is always for the nations. And our, unfortunately, our as time passes on, now our locus of who is important to God and who is the nations has just changed. So a lot of times we think of ourselves. We think of our ourselves, our city, our state, our country. And it's good to think about those things, but we cannot neglect the fact that people all over the world, God has a heart for people all over the world to know him and to be a part of eternity with him. And there's ways that he's given us a call to disciple those nations. There's also ways that God is working in those nations that we will never fully understand until eternity. And we, But we, we do understand, and what God has told us is that he does have a heart for the nations. This is yet another example, even at the birth of Jesus how the nations are involved. And that kind of actually goes into my second application point, the Jewish versus the Gentile reception of this good news, right? This is good news that this child has been born, 
that this prophecy has been fulfilled. And we see again, these religious guys from another religion, from a different country, they're here for it. They see the sign, they see what God's doing. They want to be a part of it. Whereas the leader of the nation of Israel in Jerusalem, Herod, and the chief priests and the scribes, they're all talking about what terrible news this is because someone is coming along, perhaps, that's going to knock them off their pedestal, right? Now, it's not. this isn't just to rag on the Jewish leaders, but it's to remind ourselves that oftentimes we can feel, we can put ourselves in the position of the Jewish leaders. We're worried about different, um, different ways that God is working in the world, kind of knocking us off our feet, right? And catching us off guard and making us uncomfortable. Even when maybe some of those things are good news, we want to have hearts like those of the wise men, like we see in the book of Jonah, when Jonah is really stubborn, but the people of Nineveh receive this message with great joy that they're ready to hear from God. We want to be a people that are ready to hear from God, not ones that are entrenched in our own self-righteousness, especially for those of us, I think, that have uh, known Jesus for a long time, have been Christians for a long time. We can sometimes feel like we've got it pretty well figured out and we lose that sensitivity to what God is doing. Let's be more like these wise men who went to great lengths to inquire about something that they wanted to know, is this from God, rather than hearing that something is from God and then saying, okay, what are we going to do about this, right? Like the Jews do. Hearing something and assuming like, okay, this is this has changed. This is different. This could make us uncomfortable. We need to stop it. We want to be more like those who would travel miles and miles just to see what God might have. We want to have that kind of heart always receptive to what God has for us. And then finally, the question is not just for how do the Jews receive this good news? How do the Gentiles receive this good news? This is also a question for us. How do we receive this news? The birth of Jesus reminds us that like Herod and the wise men, we have a choice before us. The birth of Jesus reminds us that we have a choice before us, and that choice is this. How will we receive Jesus? Ones we see in this story. One is, is do we receive him as a king to be worshipped? Do we see him as he truly is, see him as our Savior, our Messiah, the one who's worthy of our worship, the one who's worthy of our submission to him, the one who we can entrust all those things to, even when we have to admit that we aren't good enough, that he's good enough. Do we receive him as a king to be worshipped? Or maybe sometimes do we receive him like Herod did as a threat to our own self-rule? Not any of us are really uh, in charge of entire countries or entire cities. But sometimes Jesus, we see him as a threat to our own self-rule, our own self-governance, our own opinions, our own feelings, our own thoughts about what is right and what is wrong. So Jesus is to us, he is a threat to our self-rule. In fact, he is the, uh, he's, he's bringing in the bulldozer to absolutely annihilate our self-rule because self-rule is what earned us the punishment that we deserve in the first place, which is death, right? He's come as a bulldozer to knock out that self-rule and instead to put himself as king. And giving up our self-rule, like when there's a bulldozer, it can be quite unpleasant, destructive. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of just 
uprooting of things, destruction, things that have maybe been around a long time that need to go, but sometimes very stubbornly. So as the more we see Jesus as a king to be worshipped, hopefully the more we recognize that, yes, he is a threat to our self-rule, but that's a good thing. Because we want the king who is worthy of being worshipped, not the king or queen that we make ourselves to be. Because we've seen how that rule goes. If we're honest with ourselves, we know what the end of having us on the throne of our life, we know the end of that, and it's death, and it's destruction, and it's hurt, it's pain. When we put Jesus on his rightful throne in our lives, when we submit to him as our king to be worshipped, we see that he's leading us into something good. He's leading us to himself. He's leading us to relationship and intimacy with himself. And all the things that he leads us toward are good. Even in the bumps along the road, even in the difficulties, even in the really trying times, he's leading us toward good, toward himself, to know him better, to reflect him better, so that other people can know him better. So as we think about this coming of Jesus during the Advent season, as we look forward to Jesus' birth, as we're in this period of waiting that Advent reminds us of, and we, of course, are in our own period of waiting, if we are in Christ waiting for Jesus' second return, it's a time for us to remind ourselves, how do I receive Jesus? Not just, have I ever believed in Jesus, but how am I receiving Jesus day to day as my life unfolds before me? Am I viewing him as a king to be worshipped, or am I in a, a tug of war with him? to see who's going to be the ruler of my life. I hope that during this Christmas season, we can be reminded that he is worthy to be worshiped. So we continue, continuously submit ourselves to his rule because he's the one, the only one who deserves to be on the throne. Mm-hmm.